idea it is to uh, question the elders from the pulpit, but I'm not sure uh, doing potluck on premillennialism Sunday was a great idea, but here we are. And uh, this morning, we attacked kind of what I believe is the root or the heart of the theory of uh, premillennialism. And I, uh, I don't know, I, I can't really preach that sermon without being angry. I don't, probably couldn't tell. I preached that with a, a good poker face, but it just makes me angry. And when you consider the implications and the, and the accusations that are made, I'm not saying everybody intentionally does that who believes in premillennialism. They might not have stepped back to think about what they're teaching and what they're saying and advocating for. But when you talk about the church being an accident or an afterthought or uh, God failing or uh, Christ failing, this idea of restoring uh, animal sacrifices in place of Christ's sacrifice as if it wasn't sufficient, that gets me hot under the collar. I mean, it really bothers me and really makes me angry. But this afternoon, the things we're going to study don't make me as angry. They make me incredulous. I mean, it's just the things we're going to talk about this afternoon are the most bizarre things I've probably ever preached from a pulpit. I feel really weird doing it, to be honest. But it's just bizarre. And we're going to look at the rapture, the great seven-year tribulation, and the battle of Armageddon, and then look at Revelation 20 and try to give an explanation, a plausible explanation of what those things might be referring to. And we said this morning, beginning with the rapture, that word's not found anywhere in the Bible. Now, the concept of the Living Christians being snatched up, that's what the word rapture means, to meet Him in the air is taught in 1 Thessalonians 4 in various places. But this idea of the saints from Pentecost to the Lord's return being resurrected separately from other resurrections and the Christians only being raptured up secretively without anybody knowing about it is certainly not a concept that's taught anywhere in Scripture. But this theory teaches, especially if you're a pre a tribulation premillennialist, if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, the good news is you get to avoid the seven-year great tribulation if you're a church, in the church, if you're a Christian. And so we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, we read this verse this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 26, but each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ that is coming, then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when He puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for He must reign till He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. He's not coming to establish an earthly reign, to establish a kingdom He's already established. He's coming to put an end to earthly affairs. Notice the sequence of events. Christ the firstfruits. Christ and His resurrection from the dead. Afterwards, His coming, those who are Christ at His coming, or the resurrection uh, raised from the dead to be with Christ. And then finally, then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when He puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for He must reign till He puts all enemies under His feet, and the last enemy that is destroyed is death. That this resurrection of all the dead, this last enemy is defeated, and then what happens? Christ begins a reign, He ends it. This scripture, along with many others, make it clear when is Christ reigning, before or after His second coming. Makes it clear He's reigning before, right now. John 6, Jesus said in multiple places that He's going to 
raise us up on the last day. The righteous are going to be raised up on the last day. Notice he says in chapter 12, verse 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Notice here, according to Jesus, the righteous and the wicked both are raised on the same day. The last day. That means there's no day after that. It's the last day. They're raised up on the same day. Not at separate events. Not separate resurrections. In Matthew 13, in various places, Jesus made it clear here in the parable of the tares, notice that the weeds and the wheat grow up together until the harvest. They coexist side by side together until the harvest. They're not separated by separate resurrections and taken from. And notice in Matthew 25, he teaches the same thing. They're together, and then he separates the goats from the sheep. He goes on in chapter 13 to talk about the kingdom being like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. And notice it doesn't just say that the righteous are going to be raptured away from the evil. The evil are separated, the wicked are separated from the righteous. Contrast to what's taught in the rapture doctrine. If you wanted a verse that about as clearly refutes this idea of a rapture as any verse in the Bible. It's the statements Jesus made in John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. All who are in the graves are going to be resurrected the same day, the same hour. Not at separate resurrections or separate events. The good to the resurrection of life, the evil to the resurrection of condemnation. How could he more clearly refute this idea of a rapture? Acts 24, 15, Paul said the same thing. There will be a resurrection, singular, of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And yet proponents of this theory say that this rapture is going to be secretive. We're told families are going to be shocked to wake up and find a child or the husband or the wife or the mother or father secretly snatched away. You'll see pictures on the internet of clothing, shirt, pants, shoes that are laying on the ground and the body's been snatched up out of them, raptured away. Driverless cars are going to collide into each other because the drivers have been raptured and Thus, the bumper sticker you may have seen, in case of the rapture, this car will be unmanned. Planes are going to crash when pilots are raptured away. Apparently, the rapture will be a secretive, invisible coming of the Lord with visible results and visible chaos. Books like the Left Behind series and movies have done much to advocate or advance dispensational premillennialists. We talked about why this is so popular and so appealing. Part of it is there's a great entertainment value. In, in this junk. I mean, it's entertaining. It's somewhat distracting. Now, thinking about the future should affect how we live in the present. There should be some, but a lot of times it's a misdirection or a distraction from you need to repent. You need to quit sinning. You need to change your life. And we can just talk about what's going to happen at the rapture. Preachers can go preach on TV or hold meetings and entertain people and tickle their ears and tell stories that's really engaging. These books were written. The movies were made. They, I think they originally were going to make one movie and they made so much money they kept making them. Listen, when Hollywood owns something, it is advocating or events, beware. 
Beware, when America owns something too, we talk about dispensational premillennialism, very Americanized. Beware. You know, the Bible tells us, in contrast to what they're teaching, that Christ's coming will be accompanied by blazing fire, the sound of a trumpet, a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God. The rapture doctrine is based on some of the loudest passages in the Bible. You see what I did there? It's always good to yell after potluck, if you're preaching after potluck. That's the irony. These proof texts about the secret of rapture are some of the loudest passages. Justin talked about this in 1 Thessalonians 4. Some of the loudest passages you'll find in all of Scripture are about the secret of event. That nobody's, the Bible makes it clear. Everyone, everywhere will hear and see this event. It's going to be unmistakable. You know, in the Great Commission, Jesus promised to be with gospel preachers until the end of the world. How if the church is going to be snatched away from the earth before the end? So we arrive at the seven-year tribulation, and this is really where um, what I'm about to say is some of the most bizarre things I've ever said from the pulpit. Just warning you up front. And I agonized over how I'm going to take you on a trip, and we're going to get on the crazy train for a little bit and go to crazy town, and I wondered how long of a journey should we take? I mean, I just feel, until I feel too uncomfortable talking about some of these bizarre things, but I want you to have a taste of it. I really want you to have a taste of what different versions of this and flavors of this, but if people would step back and really look at this and go, does the Bible really teach that? <laughs> Is that really what's going to happen? I want to share with you how Lindsay's view of this seven-year great tribulation from there's a new world coming He's one of the most influential dispensational premillennialists. He's the Schofield Reference Bible and Hal Lindsey's writings and some other people have been uh, very influential. And so he says, the Antichrist will appear and sign a defense pact with Israel and become world dictator, world ruler. 144,000 Jews are converted to Christ and they convert in innumerable multitude. Moses and Elijah will appear on earth and preach for three and a half years and be martyred. The Jews will rebuild the temple during the three and a half years of peace. Animal sacrifices are going to be restored in the temple in Jerusalem. We talked about that this morning. A worldwide religion will unite almost all the world. And at the midpoint of that tribulation, the Antichrist will rule at the temple in Jerusalem. Now we have the seven seals. The first seal, the Antichrist begins to rule. The second seal, the Egyptians and Arabs move toward Israel. Russians join them and then attack Egypt. Remember, he's writing during the Cold War, by the way. The third seal, a worldwide famine, will be followed by a great financial disaster. The fourth seal, death on a massive scale. A fourth of the world's population dies. The fifth seal, believers are mass murdered worldwide for refusing to worship the Antichrist and receive the mark of the beast, 666, on their forehead or in the right hand. It's interesting, the first six Roman numerals of the seven add up to 666. When you look at that number in the context of the Roman Empire in this book, it's not nearly as complicated or mysterious as people have tried to make it. Some will say it's uh, the, the, the IRS or the tax system or all of that, a very tempting view for many people, I'm sure. The sixth seal, a massive earthquake said to be the first nuclear exchange, blackens the sun and the moon becomes like blood. The seventh seal, it contains the seven trumpet judgments soon to occur near the end of the tribulation. So now we have the seven trumpets. The first trumpet, a massive nuclear... He loves nuclear warfare. I mean, he, it's during the Cold War. He would love to come to Pantex and tour uh, Pantex. Massive nuclear attack, larger than one occurring in the sixth seal. A third of the trees, grass, crops, and vegetation is destroyed. The second trumpet, huge H-bombs, destroy one-third of ocean life and ships and turn a third of the oceans into blood. 
The third trumpet, a third of the world's fresh water supply is contaminated by, you guessed it, a thermonuclear exchange. The fourth trumpet, a third of natural light, the sun, moon, and stars is reduced. This is caused by nuclear fallout. The fifth trumpet, a star, Satan falls. He opens the bottomless pit, which releases fallen angels or demons. The locusts here are cobra helicopters, spraying nerve gas. Now, let me just point out, who's taking everything literally? Are the locusts or the grasshoppers, are they grasshoppers or cobra helicopters? I thought everything was literal. The sixth trumpet, an oriental army, 200 million, crosses the Euphrates, headed west, and kill a third of the world's population. The seventh trumpet releases the seven vials or bowls. The first bowl soars upon everyone who worships the beast. The second, the sea becomes blood and all life in the sea dies. The third bowl, fresh water supply is turned to blood. The fourth bowl, a global heat wave, probably from a nuclear exchange, results in no drinking water. There's a big run on Coca-Cola. I am not making this up. There's a big run on Coca-Cola. The fifth bowl, darkness upon the throne of the beast, Rome, and also upon his kingdom, the European market nations, which are the revived Roman Empire. 200 million Chinese can now move into the darkness. Fascinating because guess what? Today we have this thing called night vision. But somehow this darkness is going to allow the Chinese to move in the cover of darkness. Night vision was somewhat new and novel when he wrote these things, so maybe he wasn't familiar with it. I don't know. The sixth bowl, the Euphrates River, is dried up. Uh, so that the 200 million Chinese can move into the Middle East for the Battle of Armageddon. The seventh bowl of the Battle of Armageddon occurs at the end of the tribulation. That's what they say the seven uh, seals, trumpets, and bowls refer to. I'll let you decide. Do you think what Seth talked about Wednesday night makes more sense within the context of the book? (laughs) Or do you think uh, this uh, explains these trumpets and bowls and seals? So much of the misunderstanding... You hear people talk about the sign of the times. I've had people, multiple people, whatever world event, each generation, whatever's going on currently, the sign of the times, the sign of the times, sign of the times. It's a misunderstanding of Matthew 24. They get a lot of that. And we don't have time to do a complete exposition of Matthew 24, but I want to give you some reasons why. We know that's not what it's referring to. It's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. Think about the context here. They're, the, Jesus and the disciples temple, they're looking at the temple, and they're showing him all the buildings of the temple, and what's Jesus tell them? Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. He's predicting the destruction of the temple, Jerusalem, and, they, and it generates this question, when's this going to happen? Where are the signs that we're going to see this coming? End of the end of the world. Some think that Matthew 24 is all about the destruction of Jerusalem. Some see that they are associating the destruction of Jerusalem with the end of the world. The temple's going to stay until the end of time, they thought. So when's it going to happen? So two questions. When's the destruction of Jerusalem or the temple going to occur? And when's the end of the world? And he shows them in his answer that they're not the same event. He gives them signs by which they can see the destruction of Jerusalem coming and escape. But of that day and hour, he pivots in verse 36, I believe. No one knows. You can't predict it. And we have a multitude of epic failures to drive home that point. Every time people have tried to... And you know who laughs about that? Atheist. How does that help the credibility of Christianity when we keep setting these dates, the sign of the times, and, well, we forgot to carry the one, (laughs) and we said another date, and another date, and another date, and another date. He gives them signs by which they can see the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and escape. And those signs, we don't have time to study them. You can go look, the historian Josephus and uh, secular historians, the earthquakes, the rumors of war, the persecution of his disciples, 
fulfilled precisely as Jesus warned them. Uh, these signs of this coming. Verse 15, Therefore, speaking of the signs he just talked about, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This abomination of desolation, Daniel 9, Titus, the general of the Roman Empire, abomination of desolation, Luke 21, 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, the Roman army, then know that its desolation is near. And so the historian Eusebius writes that Christians did in fact escape the city, having been commanded by a divine revelation. They fled to the city of Pella. Josephus, who lived this time and survived uh, this destruction, says, And now the Romans, upon the flight of the seditious into the city, and upon the burning of the holy house itself, and of all the buildings round about it, brought their ensigns to the temple and set them over against its eastern gate. And there did they offer sacrifices to them, and there did they make Titus emperor with the greatest acclamations of joy. Abomination of desolation. They did abominable things in this holy place, and they desolated the city and the temple. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Josephus writes how up to a million people died. And I'm not going to read you the account. It's too graphic for some of the people in our audience. You can go read about it. It'll turn your stomach. Some of the things that happened during this siege in Jerusalem and what happened to them. Jesus said, nothing like it has happened nor will happen. Josephus writes essentially the same thing. Neither did any other city suffer such miseries from the beginning of the world. And I think the key in this whole chapter is verse 34, starting in verse 33. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Things concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. He warns them to flee to the mountains. Now, if that's a future tribulation or the future second coming of Christ, why would it matter if it's Saturday why would it matter if you're nursing an infant? Why would it matter if it's the winter? Are we going, is everybody living going to flee to the mountains when Christ comes back? What good does that do? It makes perfect sense if he's warning them how to escape the destruction of Jerusalem. Makes perfect sense. But if that day and hour, the second coming, no one knows. You can't predict that. If the Son of God knew what he was talking about, these date setters have no clue what they're talking about. They know no more about His second coming than their pet dog or their pet fish. What about this Antichrist? Daniel 9, this is where they get so much of this about this, this Antichrist, this world dictator that's going to rise to power. They see, it talks about the prince, the Messiah, and then this other prince that's going to come, which I believe is clearly Titus, the general of the Roman army, and the destruction of Jerusalem, but somehow they think it's this future Antichrist that's going to rise to power. Daniel 9 is one of the most fascinating prophecies in the entire Bible, if not the most. If you're trying to convince a Jew or an unbeliever that Jesus is the Messiah through prophecy, to me, not only does Daniel in chapter 2 tell us the, the era, the empire that would be in the world power, the Roman Empire, the days of these kings or Caesars, but he gets even more specific in chapter 9 and pinpoints the exact year. Either he came then or he's not coming. He gives us a starting point, the decree to rebuild uh, the temple in Jerusalem, Seven sevens or 49 years later, the city's rebuilt under the leadership of Nehemiah. Sixty-two sevens from that point, the Messiah 
would be anointed. That's the exact year Jesus was baptized and anointed by the Holy Spirit and began His three-and-a-half-year ministry. In the next seven, in the midst of the next seven, three-and-a-half years later, the Messiah would be cut off. Bring it into sacrifice. Bring it in an everlasting covenant. That's the year Jesus was crucified. Then it goes on to talk about this destruction, I believe, the destruction of Jerusalem. This other prince or leader, Titus. And so premillennials will say, oh yeah, Jesus fulfilled all of this, but now somehow there's a gap from his crucifixion to this future prince. Not Titus, the Roman general, but at some future antichrist. There's a period of time, there's somehow a gap they insert in there of 2,000 years or however long it'll be before this antichrist rises to power. It's interesting, you want to look at all the places that we find the word antichrist in the Bible, you notice none of them are in the book of Revelation. We studied them and we studied First John. John writes about them in, in other epistles. And in the context of this book, we noticed that John is addressing Gnosticism. This idea that Christ could not become flesh because flesh is pure evil. God could not become a man. And so they denied the incarnation. That's what John's dealing with. Those who are anti-Christ in that way, against Christ. Think about what the term means. And if you look at all these references to the Antichrist, notice he says they were present in the first century then. And there was a plurality, not a singular Antichrist. Every generation thinks it's, it's somebody they don't like during their lifetime, right? Uh, Hitler, Mussolini, uh, Trump, Biden, whoever you want it to be, right? Plural. And who is the Antichrist? And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist. There's the Antichrist. <laughs> Anyone that's against Christ. And so now we have this battle of Armageddon, supposedly. Christ will return after this battle of Armageddon. This battle of Armageddon, it's going to occur a cataclysmic global holocaust at the end of the seven-year tribulation that results in that thousand-year millennial reign at Christ's return. To summarize, 200 million Chinese march on Israel... On the way, they kill up to a billion people. All the oceans and drinking water turns to blood. There's a worldwide epidemic of ulcers and a global heat wave resulting in that big run on Coca-Cola. Hope you have stock, although I'm not sure it's going to matter. They arrive in Israel and meet the Antichrist in nuclear war while it literally rains down 100-pound hailstones. Listen, this is the type of nonsense you get with bad hermeneutics. We talk a lot about hermeneutics, and you get tired of, oh, we got to study the Bible correctly and properly. That's why it matters. That's the junk you can get into when you don't know how to study the Bible correctly. It matters. And so Revelation 16, 16, here's where we find this battle. And they gather them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. So again, we have to understand and interpret this in context. The verses leading up to this battle of Armageddon speak of Satan and his allies, the Roman emperor, in the enforcers of emperor worship, and this passage suggests a marshalling of these forces to help the empire and the cult of emperor worship. So whatever is being described here will happen within the context of chapter 1, verse 1, shortly come to pass, symbolic language, and the principal message here is to comfort persecuted Christians. Okay, we've got to keep that in context. Whatever's going on here is within that context. The question they ask, how long, Lord? Why this persecution? When are you going to do something about this? When are you going to vindicate us? Is it worth it to not receive the mark of the beast and do business with the beast and die for Christ? Is it worth it? How long? And they're told, wait a little longer for more of your brethren to be martyred. And I'm going to do something about it. 
I'm going to judge this beast. The seven seals and trumpets and bowls through moral decay and moral darkness and natural disasters and earthquakes we read about in history that occurred there. And an invasion by barbarians. Those are the very things that led to the overthrow of the Roman Empire. Satan sees the weakening of this ally and he's not going down without a fight. He sends messengers like frogs. So again, if this, are frogs literally going to lead this army in this battle? Is that literal or is it symbolic? They gather in a place called Armageddon in the midst of all these symbols. And that's the most famous battleground in the entire world in human history. This is where the blood's going to be up to the horse's bridle over that large of an area, literally impossible, at the foot of Mount Carmel, one of the nearby towns, Megiddo. This is the place that held special significance, especially in Israel, critical battles that were fought and won. It was here that Deborah and Barak defeated Sisera, and Gideon's 300 men routed the thousands of Midianites. Seemingly underdogs, minority, winning a decisive battle. That's the message for the church in Christianity. That's the imagery they had about Armageddon. They were familiar. They, it's like we talk about somebody meeting their Waterloo. Or in American terms, um, Pearl Harbor, Normandy. Texas terms, the Alamo. Remember the Alamo. Decisive battles were fought. And often great victories were won. In the midst of these symbols for Satan, a dragon, the Roman Empire, a beast with seven heads, the emperor worship cult, a lamb with two horns, the envoys going out to these kings of the world, the frogs. We have a symbol for this battle, Armageddon. This symbolizes this destructive battle, conflict between God and Satan and the Roman Empire and the church. Satan's making every effort to not go down without a fight and using the Roman Empire to try to wipe out and destroy the church. The place of Romans, Revelation 16 in this book makes it clear we're dealing with symbolic events and symbolic visions. God makes the harlot Rome drink the cup of the wine of the fury. That's symbolic language. Hundred pound hailstones fall on people. That's symbolic language. In chapter 9, the defeat of the beast is again pictured, but now they are defeated by a rider on a white horse whose only weapon is a sword coming out of his mouth. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We have something sharper than any two-edged sword. The gospel, the truth, and the armies that follow him are not arrayed in physical armor. They're arrayed in white. White linen. It's a spiritual fight. Put on the whole army of God. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. That's not, the, that's not our fight. And so now we arrive back where we started, Revelation 20. And I contemplated for a while trying to do these sermons without explaining Revelation 20. And I felt like that was weak. You know, this is one of the most challenging passages. It might be the most challenging passage in the book of Revelation. And there are a lot of views, obviously, about what this means. And I think we know what it doesn't mean, hopefully, today. hope you at least can walk away going, I know it's not that. I know it's not dispensational premillennialism or historic premillennialism. People say, well, how do you know it? what something is not if you don't know what it is. Two men that were debating Revelation 20, and one of them said, I know it's not a thousand-year reign on the earth. I know because the Bible clearly doesn't, you know, teaches against that. I know it's not. We said, well, what is it? He said, I don't know exactly what it is, <laughs> but I know it's not that. You know, you can't know what something, that something is not something if you don't know what it is. And the guy 
quickly responded, hey, how's your wife over there? There was some rough-looking woman on the street corner. And the guy said, that's not my wife. He said, well, who is she? He said, I don't know. Well, how do you know she's not your wife if you don't know who she is? We can know what something is not, even though if we don't dogmatically know exactly what it is. And so understand that. <laughs> but I'm going to try to give you some plausible alternatives or, or explanations of what Revelation 20 is referring to that don't violate clear Scripture throughout the Bible. Remember the context. Shortly come to pass, symbolic language. We have a huge dragon knocking a third of the stars out of the sky with its tail. A seven-headed beast, oceans of the world turning to blood. A third of the sun becoming darkened. A horde of 200 million soldiers riding on fire-breathing horses that kill with the sting of their tails. Frogs which come out of the mouths of a dragon and two beasts and carry a message to kings of the world. A harlot riding on the back of a seven-headed beast and drinking the blood of the saints. It's symbolic. It's figurative. You know, Jesus himself used figures of speech frequently. I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. Not literally. Is he literally a door? Is he literally water? It's symbolic. He said this morning, we talk about, I've told you a million times, literally. The White House said today, you hear that on the news, did the White House literally talk? The book of Revelation unveils these truths, these unseen realities the church needed to see. Christians needed to find comfort in. You can't see it. It doesn't feel like it. You feel like the minority and the loser. You're not. Here's the reality. Here's the truth and the pre- that you can't see. Paul talked about look beyond the transient. Look to the eternal reality. It's preparing for us an exceeding weight of glory. Look at that. Behold that. Why would we think, when it talks about the binding of Satan, why would we think a figurative servant, serpent was bound with a figurative chain and thrown into a figurative abyss, was locked with a figurative lock that had a figurative key for a literal thousand years? You see the problem with that? The context around Revelation 20 is not even about the thousand-year reign of Christ. It's about victory over Satan and the Roman Empire. It's about victory in Jesus. That's the theme. Overcoming in Christ. Each of those symbols were to encourage and give relief to these Christians who are facing tremendous tribulation and tremendous persecution. To keep heart, there's a, there's a crown at the end. The abyss, the chain, the key, all that is figurative symbols to show Satan's power in using the Roman Empire to try to wipe out the church was going to be limited. God was going to do something about it. And their ability to deceive the world through emperor worship. And so first note, when we look at this passage, nothing is said about the earth, but the throne of David, Jerusalem, the second coming, an earthly kingdom. Nothing is said about those things. Why a thousand years? That is a perfect number. It's ten cubed. Used in other places about God's faithfulness to keep His covenant to the thousandth generation. It means totally, completely. It's a perfect number. A thousand year reign of who? They lived and reigned with Christ. Who? The faithful saints, those who overcame. They've lived faithfully through the crisis. They've been given this kingdom. There's no defeat and death for the faithful saint. That's the message. But notice it says nothing about how long Christ reigns. (laughs) They reigned with Christ. When I say I, I worked with Mr. Lathrop for 12 years, it says nothing of how long Mr. Lathrop has worked. Who reigns? Faithful Christians. Specifically, in this context, it really is referring to, in a lot of ways, the martyrs 
who stayed faithful and overcame, who reigned and lived with Christ in life and in death. That's the point. Why are they said to reign? Because death does not stop that life, that reign with Christ. That's the message. The men of Sodom will rise up and judge. In that sense, they sit on thrones judging the Roman Empire in that same way. They reign with Christ. And where do they reign? We see this throne, these thrones throughout the book of right besides the throne of the beast. <laughs> but the good thrones, where are the good thrones? Where are they reigning from? Heaven. You go look at the word throne throughout there. The throne is not on earth. The throne is in heaven, in the presence of God. Notice Revelation 1, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. Through the blood of Christ, we enter into the kingdom, into the church, through the new birth. It's present, and it was present then 2,000 years ago. By your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, Jew and Gentile alike. Romans 5, 17 says the same thing. For if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Chapter 6, resurrected to walk with Him in newness of life. You can share in that resurrection with that reign, that life with Christ. Winners and losers. That's the contrast. You want death and sin to reign over you? Or you want life and righteousness and Christ to reign in your life? Take part in this resurrection. Revelation 12, 10 and 11, this is perhaps one of my favorite. You know, when you do a series and somebody speaks before you and talks about something, you're, that's what Seth did Wednesday night, and I had to you know, resist the urge to pout. You know, I was gonna, well, I'm still going to say that. Revelation 10 and 11, 12, 10 and 11, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down, and they overcame Him by what? By what? Politics? Come and take it? Bigger guns? That's how the kingdoms of the world fight. You have not so learned Christ. The weapons of our warfare are carnal and white linen. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. That's how we win. That's how we overcome whatever's before us. Whatever obstacle, whatever opposition, temptation, sin, persecution, if we experience that, whatever stands before us, you win by fighting that way. Not sinking to Satan's level and the world's level and fighting. Jesus taught us, turn the other cheek, and He showed us how to do that. He won through a cross. The exact opposite way carnal men in the world thinks to fight. That's how you win. That's how you overcome. That's how you conquer the Roman Empire. Not by fighting back. By faith, hope, and love. By and in the blood of the Lamb. The King of kings and Lord of lords. He reigns. He's King and He's Lord right now. And so imagine a battlefield of dead bodies. Some have the mark of the beast on them. Some have the name of Christ on them, and those with the name of Christ come back to life. They're not dead. To die is gain. To depart and be with the Lord. I continue to live. I continue to reign with Christ in life and in death. It's not over. It's not the, that's the vision John's sharing with them. It's not over. 
The rest of the dead and die in the service of the beast, they die. They're dead that whole time. They don't share. They have no part or lot in that victory, in that life, in that reign. They don't die and go and be with the Lord. They're separated. They're in permanent death, eternal death. They're resurrected only to die the second death. Those who overcame, those who die, share in the victory, share in the reign in the kingdom of God, just like those who are living in that kingdom. That's the message. First Thessalonians 4, they have no advantage. They all live and reign with Christ in life and in death. What's the first resurrection? Well, I think in the immediate context, it's those martyrs being brought back to life. In the vision, they're, they're not dead. It's not over. The life and the reign continue after your physical life. Some see the resurrection of the cause they died for. Some see the new birth, raised to walk in newness of life that makes us a victor in life and in death with Christ and the imagery in that. He sees a first resurrection because he's going to see a second resurrection, just like he saw a first death and a second death. The first death experienced by both saint and sinner alike. Those here died in service to the beast, died in service to Christ. And those who are going to experience that second resurrection experience the second death. But those who experience the first resurrection, who die in the Lord, Satan can't touch them anymore. That's the message. He can't take away your life. He can't take away your reign with Christ. That first resurrection is to life and reigning. The second resurrection will be to a second death. And so the thousand-year binding and the thousand-year reign speak of the same things from different angles. The first, the binding from Satan's vantage point showing his complete and total loss and defeat and using the Roman Empire to try to destroy and wipe out the church. The second, from the vantage point of those who overcame, those who experienced victory in Jesus, their total and complete reign with Christ. They are joined, you see the, the, the Christians in the kingdom on thrones, reigning with Christ in the kingdom, and they are joined in that reign by martyred saints, by their brethren, who have been raised to sit on the thrones with their brothers. And so he says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Can't touch you. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Blessed because they died in the Lord. It's two deaths. In the Lord, out of the Lord. Winners and losers. The righteous live again. Completely and totally. That's the way their victory is depicted. They reigned and lived with Christ for a thousand years. Those who die out of the Lord, those who died at that time in service of the beast, are depicted as enduring that thousand years of death, only to be raised to die again. So it's figurative. It's symbolic. Notice they had a priesthood before they died in life in the kingdom. They have a priesthood with God after death. Continuance. Victory. Live or die, it's service to God. Live or die, it's victory in Jesus. That's the message. Take heart. And what we do agree on with these different theories is that's coming. We're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and there's not going to be a millennium of second chances. That's one of the dangerous things of these types of doctrines, just like we see reincarnation in India. Guess what people, when you tell people they're going to get a second chance, guess, guess how they respond when you tell them they need to repent and change their life. When Christ comes back, He came the first time as Savior. When He comes back the second time, it's for judgment. Are you ready? Prepare to meet thy God. Will you live and reign with Christ completely and totally? And the answer is, are you washed in the blood? And as a Christian, First John, as we 
are imperfect? Are you continually cleansed by the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood? And if you need to be washed and cleansed by the blood, the Lamb of God invites you to come as we stand and sing.